Well, I want to ask you to engage your imagination a little bit today. Would you be willing to imagine that you're in ancient Rome? And that today you didn't come to a big auditorium like this, but that you came to a small little house, maybe a room large enough for a dozen, two dozen people. And there you are with the first group of people who would have heard the letter that St. Paul wrote that we call Romans for the very first time. Probably would have been read across the room from where you're standing as you lean against the wall and can kind of look through the heads and you see a woman who's there. And now this woman's name is Phoebe and she's here to read Paul's letter to you. And, and you've been following along for 11, 12 chapters as you listen to this wonderful, wonderful news about Jesus Christ. When Phoebe comes to this part, and I think if she comes to this part, you'd frankly be surprised, maybe even a bit angry. Here's what she says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And you're, wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds like it should come more from the Ministry of Information or something, not from Phoebe. Phoebe is a friend and a uh, a colleague in ministry to St. Paul. She's a woman of God. And here she says, be subject to the governing authorities. Now, you had trouble sleeping that night, so you woke up a little early and you went over to the television set, happened to turn it on and flick through the different channels. And all the channels, it was the same thing. It was political news everywhere, Fox, CNN. They were all talking about one guy, Nero. Nero. Now, Nero at this time is 19 years old. He's been emperor for three years, uh, started in AD 54. And he started really well, actually he promised to end corruption. He promised to uh, restore the courts, bring back the Senate. But there's something about Nero that makes you feel a little anxious. You don't know quite what it is, but you're frankly suspicious. And with Nero, you should be suspicious. Because two years from now, he will murder his mother and make it look like suicide. Five years from now, he will go after his political opponents with rigged treason trials. Seven years from now, it is credibly reported that he was the one who started the great fire of Rome that would destroy two-thirds of the imperial city. And, and around that same time, he will execute Phoebe's friend, the Apostle Paul. And so now she says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities? This raises questions. Like the question I want to raise for you this morning. How does a follower of Jesus think about politics? Okay, that's a good question. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, we've got an election coming up here uh, a few weeks, months. And uh, at UPC, our focus is on Jesus. He's why we're UPC. He's why we're here. And in fact, we don't believe that the pulpit is a place for political pronouncements. You can't have a conversation at the pulpit. So we, we, we focus on Jesus and God's word in our preaching. We really want us to each form our political opinions independently. And we have this broad spectrum that I love, actually, of political views here 
at UPC. But what we do do is encourage one another to shape our political thinking by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's learn from the Apostle Paul as he enters into this subject. Would you open your Bible to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7? You'll find that on page 923 of the Pew Bible there in front. I hope everyone will open it up because if you're able, I'd like you to stand and read with me aloud Romans chapter 12. No, 13, sorry. 13 uh, verses 1 through 7. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, Revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Well, I think what Paul's talking about here is what I would call faithful citizenship. Faithful citizenship. And I want to draw two lessons out for us today. And the first one is this. It's avoid the idolatry in politics. Avoid the idolatry. In other words, put your faith first. Notice what verse 1 says. There is no authority except from God. God is first. First, now and always. Caesar is second. Now, this is so interesting. In a single phrase, the Apostle Paul both affirms politics and its importance in our life and actually sows the seeds of its subversion because he undermines every claim that politics will ever make to supremacy, every claim that it'll ever make to be the greatest of all realities, the real politic. No, there is something greater, and it's God. And so he says, be subject, but don't worship. Don't worship at the altar of politics. Now, in ancient Rome, idolatry was actually baked into the political uh, process. Uh, The Roman emperor was referred to as the son of God, as the savior of the world, as as divine. This this was just the way. Now, if you look in verse 6, you'll see that the apostle Paul talks about paying taxes. The word there, taxes, is the word for tribute pay tribute. And the way that would work, every year, at a certain time of year, you would have to go to a public place, pinch 
some uh, in, incense and throw it on the fire. And you would have to pay your tribute, this annual fee or tax, and you would have to say, Caesar is Lord. The Romans didn't care much what other gods you had. They just cared about the first god you had, and it had to be Caesar. And Paul says, pay the tax, but don't worship. Right? See that? Talk about don't turn politics into an idol. Now, I don't think there's anybody in Seattle who would say they worship politics. No one in this room, for sure. And in fact, if we did a poll, most of us would say something like just exactly the opposite, frankly, about politics. We don't worship politics. But be careful. Do they shape our lives? Politics. Remember, Psalm 115 tells us that those who make idols shall become like them. One way you can know whether you have an idol is, is it shaping your life in its image? So what's an idol? Well, an idol is something other than God that you put in first place. An idol is taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing, a supreme thing, giving it that spot in your heart or in your soul. And it could be success, and it could be money, and it could be beauty, and popularity, or it could be power. Now, what power does politics have in our lives? What place does it have in our lives? This is what I've been thinking about this week. How does politics shape my life? And I want to suggest just quickly three things, our mood, our relationship, and our faith. Our mood, be very careful. This is a time right now in our society when many of us are becoming obsessed with politics and we can't help but reach for that phone in our pocket just to find out what's happening now, what happened today. And it just tanks the mood so quickly. Does this indicate that I have given politics a disproportionate place in my emotional life? Either seeing it too much or having, frankly, just to avoid it altogether. What is my hope for the end of the world? Do I think ultimately the world is going to come to a positive or negative resolution as a result of politics or is there something else? Many of us are so afraid these days and that fear is growing out of political realities. Do we really want to give those realities that place in our heart? Or think about our relationships. Right now, I meet so many people who have lost relationships because of politics. Everybody these days seems to think that we should avoid talking about politics with our friends. And the reason for that is that we don't, it's not that we don't think that our political views will survive the conversation, it's that we don't think our relationship will survive the conversation. Whoa, what is that telling us about which is more important, our politics or our family or friends? We sit, if we sit at all, oftentimes at divided tables with silent mouths. Oftentimes, we won't even gather with family because of political views, our relationships, and then our faith. Isn't there a real risk that I would hold up every faith claim and measure it against my pre-existing political beliefs, and I will only let come in and penetrate my belief structure, something that I, all, that I already agree with because it meshes with my politics? And if it doesn't mesh with my politics, then, then I won't receive it. And what's taking first place there? Not my faith, my political views. I get emails from people who seem like they've kind of obsessed about what's got said or didn't get say 
in church as though they're not listening for the gospel at all. They're listening for an affirmation of their political views and can't really even hear good news or enter into the worship of the king of kings. G.K. Chesterton says, idolatry is committed not merely by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils, by making people afraid of war or alcohol or economic law when they should be afraid of spiritual corruption or cowardice. Brothers and sisters, your politics will never love you. Your politics doesn't know your name. Your politics won't swoop in and walk beside you when you're down to elevate your mood. Your politics will never redeem your past or give you a better future. Your politics, as long as it is not Jesus Christ as our King of Kings, is a dangerous idol. And Paul is saying, you're not in Caesar's hands. You're not. You are ultimately in God's hands. You're in God's hands. He knows your name. He loves you. And so don't make politics an idol. I think that's important for our city in Seattle. (laughs) Avoid the idolatry. The second lesson is respect the authority. If we're going to be faithful citizens, we have to participate as citizens. And Paul's saying, respect the authority of governing agencies. So he says in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Be subject to the governing authorities. Now, apparently, there's a group of people in this room with you uh, who didn't have a problem with the idolatry of politics. In fact, they went so far away from the idolatry issue that they kind of walked past the authority issue the good thing that's to be had in politics. You you know, you don't put up a no smoking sign unless there's uh, people lighting up in that area, right? And I wonder why it is that people are turning away from the authority of politics. Maybe it's simply Nero, that would be enough. Could also be the taxation issue. No one's particularly fond of Roman tax collectors. If you've read the Gospels, you know that story. And in fact, one year later, uh, there's gonna be a tax revolt that breaks out in Rome. I think it's those issues, but I also think it's the way that Paul speaks about Jesus. Because Paul, like the other apostles, say of Jesus that he is Lord. They have ripped off the political slogan of the empire, which was, remember, Caesar is Lord, and they're going, not so much, Jesus is Lord. The first confession of faith of the early followers of Jesus is that he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is Lord. That's got to start to change your perception of political authority. And, and it does. And the Apostle Paul in this letter, if you, if you read the letter through this political lens, it's very interesting because in chapter 1, he starts right off saying, you know who's the Son of God? You know who's the Savior of the world? It's Jesus. And he comes to rule over the Jew and over the Gentile. He'll be the king of all nations. And you know, this Jesus... He comes to make us rulers, those who claim him as king. We also uh, shall rule. And you know, this Jesus, he's the one who reveals God's justice for all of creation. And you know, this Jesus, he's the one who's going to bring a peace for which all of nature is groaning right now. Jesus is Lord. And it's really easy to get from Jesus is Lord to Caesar is nothing. And Paul says, don't go there. Don't go there. Uh, respect the authority. Respect the authority that God gives to political entities. 
Why? Well, he gives us a couple of reasons. For one, he's saying it's from God. God has given it. And the other is that it's for good. God wants it for the good of the world, for your good. That's why he's instituted or placed this authority in place. Civil government has two uh, uh, purposes. One is to restrain evil, and the other is to promote justice. It's important. It's, this is, it's really striking because many of us have, in this room are coming to believe that, wow, Jesus is everything. And if he's everything, then his followers are sort of everyone. And Paul's going, no, 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 you know what? God is at work not just through believers, but also through unbelievers. No, no, no. God is at work not just in the church, but in the world, in the public square. And so if we're to participate with him here, we're also to participate with him there. Be subject, he says. Now, literally, that means place yourself under. Place yourself under. In fact, if you read verses 1 and 2, as I did this week in the original language Paul's using the Greek, it, Paul's very playful. There's a spirit of joy, actually, in the way he works with words. He uses the word place over and over again several times. It's translated instituted, for example. In our, he also uses the prepositions, many different prepositions, and he puts them on the front of the word place in different ways. He, and so uh, prepositions like under or over or by or against or through. And if you kind of net it all out, here's what the message would, comes across as. He says, place yourself under authority, so that you don't work against what God is working through. Place yourself under authority so that you don't work against what God is working through. Now, if you think about that for more than two seconds, it's going to start to provoke questions. It does for me. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a hard teaching. How do you know when a politician is someone through whom God is working? How do you know uh, they might be working against God? How do you know what a political system is something God's working through? Or when the whole political system is in some way working against God? How do you know? Well, I want to take a moment and invite you to turn back to the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. There's a story here you may not know, and it's super important. These are some of the great heroes of the faith. Uh, two women named Shua and Pua, Shifra and Pua. And... Uh, you read this in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. Just follow along, but let me, let me read this to you. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> We're trying, honestly. So God dealt well with them. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This is a fascinating story. This is the beginning of civil disobedience. And it's right here in the Bible. So let's unpack it a little bit. What happens? First, uh, they fear God. Notice that in verse 17. They feared God. There was no idolatry. They had God in first place. That's key. And then the second thing, they act rightly. At the end of verse 17, they let the boys live. They did what was right. Now, verse 20 will tell us 
that they multiplied. And in fact, if you look at Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, you'll find out that, that when the Israelites left Egypt, there were more than 600,000 males. So that tells you that these two women, Shifra and Pua, were not alone. There were actually a number of midwives who participated in this. In other words, these were the organizers. They organized. This is the beginning of a movement of midwives. This is the beginning of a movement of civil disobedience. And they had a massive impact. Second thing we learned from verse 20 is that God approves of it. They're not working against God. They're working with God, even though they do not obey the religious authority, the Pharaoh. So how would we know that, that this is what we should do? How, how would we know how to respect the authority of politics and to do what's right? Well, I'm going to give you two answers to this. And the first is we need to separate the people from the process. Separate the people from the process, the political process. And, and here's why I say it. Is there not a difference between the office and the office holder, between the political entity, which is the authority, and the person who exercises the authority? Yes, biblical faith will distinguish between those two things. The person in the office is accountable, like all people, to, to God, to the one who gives us authority. We will all answer to God, including those who are in positions of authority. We don't always obey the people, even as we honor the position. I think about parents. I, I hate to see this. I say this because some of our children are here, but look, you, you know, we all honor our parents, or we should, but we can't always obey our parents. We know that. We can't always obey our parents. So in the family, think also in the church, among religious people, we ought to all honor our leaders. We can't always obey them. I hate to say that. And, you know, and, and, and Peter and the apostles teach us this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. You can look at it later. The religious authorities pull them in because they're not obeying. And Peter goes, well, we must obey God rather than any human authority. See? We can't obey you because God is in first place for us. And it's the same thing uh, in, in the church. The same thing is happening in, 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 uh, in, in politics. Excuse me. Sojourner Truth. She uh, stood up against uh, slavery. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, stood up against racism in Germany. And Martin Luther King Jr. stood up against injustice. And, and in their own way, they, they found a way to respect the authority but to differentiate the people from the process and to call a greater authority to bear. John Wesley in 1774, as a pastor, saw his flock being divided by a very divisive election. It was a bitter election. And so he gave them some advice one day and he recorded it in his journal. These are the words of Wesley. I have advised them, catch this, number one, to vote for the person they judge most worthy. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And number three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Wow. Would it be worth reading that again? Listen, listen, this is John Wesley. This is, this is 1774. To vote for the person they judge most worthy, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, and to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. This is about spiritual health and courage. Distinguish the person from the process, the people from the process. The other thing I think that Paul points us to is to renew your conscience. This is, this is how we know how to 
respect the authority, but also sometimes uh, act differently. Renew our conscience. Look at, back at Romans uh, 13, verse 5. Look at this. This is what Paul talks about. He says conscience. He says you know, he appeals to their conscience. Now, he's used that word twice before in his letter in chapter 2. The conscience represents there the internalization of the law, God's word. And in chapter 9, the conscience represents the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit. Paul is teaching, as the whole Bible will teach us, that our consciences, our moral compass, are damaged by sin and distorted by conformity to the world around us. But through the Word, God's Word, the Bible, and the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be renewed. And he calls them to that in chapter 12. We've already gone over this. He renew, be renewed, the transformation of your mind. And so our conscience can be refreshed. How does that happen? Well, it begins with God's word. In fact, let me give you a little framework that uh, Dr. Ron Sider gave us here when he came several years ago. Uh, and if you want to re review this in more depth, read his book, Just Politics, Dr. Ron Sider. And he came to UPC and he says, look, every um, person who wants to engage in the public square humbly needs four things. You need, first of all, a normative framework. For us, that's the Bible. That's this, we need to read the Bible to find out who is Jesus and what is he doing in the world. That's a normative framework. Secondly, we need an understanding of the world. We need to understand the dynamics that, that have shaped how we got to this current moment and the dynamics that will shape how we move forward from this current moment. So we study history and culture and economics and geography, an understanding of the world. And then the third piece we need is a political philosophy. This is a coherent set of principles, a little bit of a roadmap. It comes from the normative framework and our understanding of the world. And it, it gives us a little bit of a, a guide through, sort through some of the challenges that we face. And then finally, we need analysis of issues. We need to really just learn about what these issues are that are right here in front of us to form informed positions. So we, we talk with one another, we read, and so forth. And then uh, with this normative framework, understanding of the world, political philosophy, and analysis of the issue, we're ready to make decisions and take action. Our conscience then can engage us humbly, faithfully, as a citizen. This is how we begin to re respect the authority, to honor the people in the process, and to work with the God who is working through the political process. So this is the question we've been addressing today. How does a follower of Jesus think about politics? We avoid the idolatry, and we respect the authority, and we be faithful citizens. If the Apostle Paul were here speaking to you, or Phoebe, I think they would say that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, uniquely shapes us and qualifies us for this work. When we say the gospel, what we mean is the good news that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. This is something new. And it happened at the cross. In, in a way, if you think about it, the cross of Jesus was really his coronation. They put a crown on his head, and they put a sign at the top of the cross that said, King of the Jews. This is the King of the Jews. And actually, they put it in three different languages because he's not just the King of the Jews. He's the King of all people. He's the King of all kings, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only good and sovereign one in our midst. It's at the cross that good citizens are made. This is good news for all people. In fact, if, if you just recall what we read earlier in chapter 5, verse 17, listen to this. Paul has previously written, if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death exercised dominion, that means it ruled 
through that one Adam, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, you know, if Adam is your ancestor and he's all of our ancestor, then we sin in the likeness of his sin and the result of that is spiritual death, eternal death, and in that sense, death has done nothing but rule all the way up to the cross. But now at the cross of Jesus Christ, we have grace, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You are forgiven. You are embraced. You are restored at the cross. And now those who say yes to this king, those who claim him as their king, those who allow the cross to be coronation in their lives, then we shall rule. We shall exercise dominion, he says, in life. Not just that we receive eternal life and salvation and a place in heaven, it's that we become co-regents with the risen king. The cross confronts human idolatry. It is God's unconditional no to anything that takes first place in your life. But the cross also restores us to God's authority. It is God's unconditional yes. And it's at the cross that we find the humility we need to be good citizens, and it's at the cross we find the faith we need to live with courage. And just like I said to you last week, that if we want to be good givers of hospitality, we need to first allow Jesus to be our host. I really meant that. If we want to be good, faithful citizens, we have to first allow Jesus to be our king, to meet us at his cross. We need to coronate him in our hearts. The great novelist Frederick Beekner, as a young man, didn't have much need for faith or God. He'd written two novels, a successful career had been launched. Didn't think about God until one day he was in New York City and he happened to walk across the street into a Presbyterian church of all places. They were in the middle of the service and there was a great preacher at that time named George Buttrick and he had an analogy going about the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and the coronation of Jesus in the human heart. And this, Beekner would later write, became a turning point in his life, the moment he converted and became a follower of Jesus. He said, and then, he says, and then, speaking of Buttrick, the preacher, when his, with his head bobbing up and down so that his glasses glittered, Buttrick said in his odd, sandy voice, the voice of an old nurse, that the coronation of Jesus took place among confession and tears, and then, as God is and was my witness, great laughter, Buttrick said. Jesus is crowned among confession and tears and great laughter, and at that phrase, great laughter, for reasons that I have never satisfactorily understood, the great wall of China crumbled, and Atlantis rose up out of the sea, and on Madison Avenue at 73rd Street, tears leapt from my eyes as though I had been struck across the face. That was the moment Frederick Beekner crowned Jesus Lord in his life. And it was an invitation to laughter, to the joy of heaven. Suddenly, Jesus was his king. May he be ours today and evermore. Let's pray. If we bow, Jesus, it's because we bow before 
the greatest of all regents, the greatest of all monarchs, the greatest of all presidents, prime ministers, the greatest of all emperors. There is on the throne of heaven a lamb who offers forgiveness to all women, to all men. Today we bow to crown you king in our hearts. For those who have never crossed this line, allowed you to claim them as, uh, to claim you as, as you have claimed us, we pray that this would be a moment of conversion for, for us as well. The great wall of China would fall, that Atlantis would rise in our hearts and that we'd know ourselves to be your beloved children and that we would reign in life with you. Be king not only in our own lives, but be king over all of creation. And so send us out today full of your Holy Spirit and the laughter of heaven that we might engage as faithful citizens, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.